We want to just let the words of that early sermon from Hebrews wrap themselves around us as we stand here at the precipice of Holy Week with Jesus. Moving into Jerusalem and perhaps with the crowds wondering what it is he was doing, though they certainly thought they knew. Why was Jesus and his disciples moving triumphantly into Jerusalem during the Passover feast? What was it they were trying to accomplish? What did Jesus think about that? And what did his disciples think about that? Andrea has already tipped us off to the fact that we already are aware of that perhaps their view of what Jesus was doing was a bit skewed. They believed he was moving them into Jerusalem in a triumphal kind of entry in order to overthrow powers that were oppressing them. But is that what was actually, is that what was actually going on? What was Jesus doing there on that first Palm Sunday at the precipice of Jerusalem? To understand more completely, what we have to do is go back to the beginning and then look beyond the veil as the Bible invites us to. So we go back to Genesis as we did in the Ash Wednesday service and we look at that moment where it says we were created in the image of God. In the image of God, male and female, God created us. One of the most important verses in Scripture for understanding who we were made and redeemed to be. And that, that verse means many things. It means many things to be created in the image of God, but two things it assuredly means that are relevant to what we're looking at today is that one, we were created to reflect God's glory in the world as God's royal emissaries. Now what that means is in that day they would have understand that a king would send out people in the king's land to represent the king's rule and the king's reign in those various places and reflect the king's glory. So human beings, you and I, were created in the image of God to reflect God's glory and God's rule and God's reign in the world. And also there's something else. Early readers and hearers of the Genesis story would hear that story unfolding in a seven-day structure and immediately know what the writer was up to, that God was creating a temple. Because the seven-day structure and the way that it flows is actually in some uh, Egyptian documents and early Hebrew documents. What you have there is the plans for a temple. So what they knew when they read that instinctively is that God was creating a temple. And what was the temple? The entire creation. And who were the priests? Those created in God's image. Meant to mediate God's presence in the world. Meant to mediate God's rule and God's reign. To cultivate God's rule and God's reign in the world. To steward over creation and God's ways in the world. They were created to be royal emissaries and stewards or priests of creation. Salt and light in the world. Bringing God's illumination and God's seasoning to all of creation. So that God's goodness might be reflected in all the earth. That's who we were created to be, and the story of Scripture tells us that's who we were redeemed to be. That we weren't saved ultimately from earth, but for earth. 
And actually, Scripture doesn't end our story in heaven, but beyond it in the new creation, where we are acting out God's plans and purposes in the world as God's priests, as God created us to be. That was the purpose of God for us in creation, and that was the purpose of God for us in redemption. But the original story tells us something happened. But it doesn't just tell us something happened. It tells us that something happened that rose out of the reality of God's creation. And that is that in the midst of God's creation, from the very beginning, there was a rebel enacting rebellion. Now, where did this rebel come from? Where did this slithering force of evil originate? We're never told. We're never told. We are told that all things came from God and that God created all things and that God's creation was good in the beginning. But then we're told in the presence of creation, there is a personified presence of evil who is bent on rebelling against God. And we have there in those first pages of Scripture a key to understanding not only who we are, but how we become who God created us to be. And the key is, as N.T. Wright said, and we discussed on Ash Wednesday, worship. The idea is that when we focus our relational energy and our attention and our praise and our worship onto God, we become through that relationship more and more and more who we were created to be. We are formed into God's image through worship. But what we also see in that creation story, N.T. Wright would say, is that we always are being formed or deformed also into the gods, the image of the gods we worship. So he would say that the original sin was idolatry. That we turned our worship away from God and began to turn it toward other gods, and that happened through the act of deception brought about in our life by the presence of evil. The serpent, the deceiver, the accuser, the adversary. Jesus Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one, is actually what the Scripture says. That there is a personified presence of evil that is a part of this reality that is enacting things and acting out things in ways that are beyond what our eyes can see and our ears can hear. Scripture begs us from beginning to end to notice that there is something going on beyond the veil of reality and that it has been going on from the beginning. We see it all the way through if we look for it. And the source of this thing that's going on, this war that's being waged, is the presence not only of evil in our world that we can see and hear and notice and identify, but the presence of some form of evil that we cannot. Scripture begs us, and this is really hard for us, Scripture begs us to have a worldview that can go beyond what our eyes can see and what our ears can hear. Scripture begs us to have a broader view of reality and the story of God and what's going on in this world. Scripture begs us to see there is more going on than we can actually identify. 
We look back uh, early in Scripture, and you may remember that story where Elisha is sitting in a house, and his servant runs into the house and runs to him and says, it says, Master, Master, we've got to get out of here. There's an army coming after you to seize us and to kill us. You've you got to get... And Elisha seems completely calm. And he says, don't worry. Those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. And the servant says, but you don't understand. It's an army and they've got tanks and machine guns and cavalry and horses and all. They're coming after us to take us and to kill us and overcome us. And he says, don't worry. Those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. He says it again and again and again, and eventually he sends the servant over to the window, pulls back the curtains, and the servant sees that army on the edge of the hill before them, and behind that army he sees an army of angels. Those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. We see this early, we see this all the way through the story, we see this at the end in Revelation, where Revelation is begging us not to consider some future prophecy, but what the presence is actually like. We're being asked again and again and again, those people who are being persecuted in the early church, to pull back the veil of reality and see that those who are for them are greater than those who are against them. That while they're being persecuted... And killed and asked to renounce their faith in Jesus, if they would only pull back the veil of reality, they would see what is working not only against them, but for them. And they're being begged again and again and again to worship the Lamb who was slain for them before the foundations of the earth. There's more going on than we can see with our eyes and that we can hear with our ears. Is there evil in the world? The windows we're going to be looking through us today beg us to see it. Is there evil in the world? You know there is. And many of us can name it in very specific ways, but is there evil beyond the veil? Is there evil beyond the evil that we, that we can name? Doesn't it seem like there is? I've never been more convinced in my entire life than these last few years that there are things going on in this world that cannot be explained. And, and I think if, 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 we, if we watch the news and we listen to the people in our community and we notice things that are going on, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about political figures I'm not talking about people or events you can see on your TV. I'm talking about people that you know and love, communities that you know and love, groups that you know and love, and seeing things enacted, acted out in the world, beliefs and ideas and things like this. And you might say about those things, I know those people. I know their character. This doesn't seem in alignment with who they are. It seems like there's something going on beyond the veil of reality that we can't see with our eyes or hear with our ears. Winston Churchill once prophetically said, the empires of the future will be empires of the mind. 
Meaning that the empires of the future will be won not with bombs, but with ideas. In Scripture, the Satan, the evil one, the adversary, is often known and characterized by deception. Deception. So the war that's going on that Scripture is trying to help us see is a war that we not only can't see, but that we can't understand because it's fought in ways that don't line up with our own vision of war in this reality. Think not so much of the images you've seen from the Ukraine, but imagine a hacker in St. Petersburg, Russia, sitting at a computer creating algorithms for social media that would bring forth certain news stories and certain ideas and certain things like that that somehow might prick your emotions and steer your thoughts in tender moments. Perhaps even begin to move a group of people to a certain sort of idea or thing. And you know, the deceiver is no dummy. But the greatest means of deception, the greatest lies, are almost always mostly true. Almost mostly true. Just enough untrue to unravel you if you believe it. This is the work of the evil one. This is how it works. And the idea of the windows we're looking through today, the victory windows, is that Jesus came not only to bring about our forgiveness, but to bring about our freedom from the forces and powers, the principalities, as Paul said, that have come to enslave us as we have participated in them. And actually, as kooky as this may sound to you, as non-modern as this may sound to you, it might be interesting for you to know that the victory windows of the atonement were the primary ones that the early church looked through through the first thousand years of the church. You get that? Now we might say, yeah, but that was then and we know better now. We know the world's not really like that now. What C.S. Lewis would call that is chronological snobbery. For the first thousand years of the church, when the church looked at the windows or looked at the cross, they saw it through these dominating ideas of victory. First, one known as ransom, and then an interrelated view called Christus Victor. The best example I've seen or read or heard of in modern culture of the ransom view of the atonement comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You read the book, you've seen the movie, perhaps, listen to it. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. At the end of the movie, we have one of the brothers, one of the siblings, Edmund. And Edmund, at some point in the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, has become hooked on Turkish delight. And the one who has hooked him on Turkish delight, some sweet candy, is um, the white witch who represents the presence of evil in Narnia. And Edmund gets to the point where he's so addicted to Turkish delight, he'll do almost anything to get it, including betraying his siblings. 
And apparently in Narnia, what we learn is that an act of betrayal against your siblings does something where it actually enslaves you, imprisons you to the white witch. And you become, your blood and your body and your life becomes hers. She can take that life if she wants to. Somehow by participating in the evil, you become captive to the evil. At the end of the story, with Edmund captive to the evil one and his brothers and sisters and others trying to free him, Aslan, the Messiah figure, the Christ figure, shows up and tries to get him out of this bondage. But there seems to be this deep magic in Narnia that's connected to a law that was written at the foundation of the world that says there's nothing Aslan can do to free him from this bondage except offer himself as a substitute. Which makes us think immediately of substitutionary atonement. But that's not actually what Lewis is trying to display here. Because what happens is Aslan uh, pays Edmund's debt with his own life, his own blood, the lion, the great lion, the Messiah lion is killed, and, and the witch believes she has now ultimately won the victory over Aslan in Narnia, only to find out a few days later that the Christ figure has risen. And they're all baffled by this. He's come back even stronger than before. What has happened? The children ask Aslan. He said, well, see, the witch did know the deep magic. She did know the law. She knew the law, the deep magic that was there at the foundation of the world. But if she had looked a little bit further back to before the beginning of time, what she would have noticed is that there is a deeper magic. And that if someone is slain who is an innocent one for a guilty one, that something begins to happen and the, 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 the wheels of death start to turn backwards. There's a deeper magic, he said. It's the magic of self-sacrificial love. The ransom theory of the atonement would say that there was a debt that was owed to the devil that God paid through Jesus, which may sound completely weird to you, except consider this. The predominant view of the atonement among many in the Christian world today is the satisfaction theory. That's the theory that was developed about a thousand years ago, which basically says that Jesus needed to die to appease the wrath of God. By the way, a pagan idea of God. To appease the wrath of God. So Jesus basically died to pay a debt that we owed to God. Or in other words, God saved us from God. But the dominant view of the atonement for the first thousand years was partly that there is this war that is going on between the powers of good and evil and that God has paid a payment and saved us from the evil one. Now, there are plenty of people that thought that sounded just as problematic as you may think it sounds today. And so there is a variation, again, for the first thousand years of the church, of this victory window called the Christus Victor Theory. And the Christus Victory Theory would go to that moment on Palm Sunday as Jesus sat on the precipice of Jerusalem and say, here's what's about to happen. What's about to happen is 
Jesus is about to storm the gates of hell. That Jesus enters into Jerusalem, storms the gates of hell. The cross seems like a victory for the devil, but what it actually is is a kind of Trojan horse. And Jesus sneaks his way into the depths of hell and unlocks the gates, letting the captives free, rising up through the resurrection, and then bringing about the new creation and inviting us to live in it. As we were always made to live and to be. That Jesus has achieved the ultimate victory on the resurrection and through the resurrection, even though we might say there's still a war and a battle going on. That's what the New Testament writers would say. But what Jesus might say is that war and that battle that's going on right now is kind of like the Japanese intelligence officer who was dropped off on the island of the Philippines about a week before World War II ended. He hid in the jungle for 29 years believing that the war was still going on until his commanding officer came and found him there. The idea of the cross and the resurrection when you look through the victory window is that the ultimate decisive battle has been won even though the war still rages on. But that the cross and the resurrection is a sign of the ultimate victory. There's more going on beyond the veil that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears if we're willing to see it. To look through these victory, to look through these victory windows. Which may sound completely strange and pre-modern to us. But I wonder if we might at least be open to the possibility that there's something else going on in our world today. Several years ago, I um, needed a doctor. I didn't have a doctor yet here. Someone pointed me to a doctor. And I needed a doctor because for a long period of time, I was experiencing chest pains. And uh, by the way, uh, just about every man in my family before my father's generation died before they were 50 years old. So don't get a search committee yet, but I'm 44. <laughs> but I thought maybe the chest pains meant I should probably go to a doctor. Christy thought that as well. So I found a doctor and I went to the doctor and they did the stress test and the heart test and all the things to try to figure out why I was having these chest pains. And ultimately we sat down to, to wade through all of the evidence and the data and he let me know it's, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with your heart. Your heart's okay, great. So probably what it is, and it's like this for a lot of people, is probably it's stress-related. We had a great conversation about that, and he knew I was a pastor, and we talked about spiritual things. Um, but it came back to this idea that it was stress-related, and maybe I needed to exercise more or, or things like that. But before I left, I, I thought, you know, there's a question I've been wanting to ask, and I, I feel nervous about it, but... but but I just want to make sure everything's on the table, that we've explored all of the options here. I said, you know, I mean, if this is stress-related, if this is anxiety-related, I, I, I wonder, because of these various things we talked about, if, if maybe, what do you think, maybe I need some anxiety medication. Maybe I should do something like that, kind of go next level on combating whatever's going on here. I was completely startled by his response, which was, or maybe you should pray more. 
And I did start praying for another doctor <laughs> at that point. <laughs> and it took me a while to get the courage to go to another doctor, but the ch- even with all of the prayer and exercise, the chest pain continues. So I, I got a suggestion to another doctor, and I, I went to another doctor, and I sat with him for just a few minutes, and this is what happened. We sat down, and he started asking me questions. As I would respond, he would type things on his computer, then ask me another question, type things on his computer. And eventually he said very quickly and clearly, well, it sounds to me like you have acid reflux. So here's what I'm going to prescribe for you. It was an off-brand version of Prilosec. Let me know in a couple of weeks how you're doing. And about four days later, the chest pains were gone. After years of trying to figure out what was going on, there was more going on than even the first doctor that I talked to could put his finger on. It was a misdiagnosis, or at least not a complete diagnosis. And I share with you in hopes that you might take that and be willing to wonder, at least for a little bit, If there are things happening in this world and in your life that may be happening for reasons you have misdiagnosed, or at least not completely diagnosed, because you don't have the openness or the ability or the willingness to consider it or see it. The victory windows of the atonement beg us to see that our brokenness in this world is rooted in realities that are both seen and unseen. The victories of the atonement, the victory windows of the atonement are begging us to understand that we are at war in ways that we know and in ways that we don't. And, on this week of all weeks, the victory windows of the atonement are begging us to see that even in the midst of these battles, God, through Jesus, has already won the ultimate victory. And that victory, if you want it, is yours. Let's pray together. Holy God, there is so much going on that you see that we do not. Even in our own heart and mind and soul, you see and understand things about us and about our community and about our families and our loved ones that are beyond our understanding. And so God, we ask you to help us, to help us, to help us find the victory in this life that you have achieved for us. To help us learn what it means to give ourselves to you and to participate in your mission in a way that brings your kingdom into this world and helps us become the people you have created and redeemed us to be. God, we pray that you would expand our vision, our understanding, our hearts, our minds, our calling, our willingness to submit our lives to you and you alone. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the victorious one. Amen.